Sir, we've had a little problem. These two women are just arriving. They objected to giving up their weapons. Klingons do not surrender their weapons. Who are you? We are Lursa and Baton of the House of Duras. Hello and welcome to the Duras Sisters podcast. We are not Klingons, but we are sisters. And I'm Ashlyn. And I am Rihanna. Wow, this is the second episode of our new series, Love and Affection. And, you know, while I was watching some of these episodes to prepare for this podcast, I kept thinking that I had to make notes about family because we just finished our family series and I am still thinking about it. (laughs) Yeah, it's so hard with these series in a fun way. It's really difficult because I want to talk about every single facet of the episode. I'm like, nope, wait, that's got to go for another series. I can't talk about this here. And so I was just texting Ashlyn off and on like, oh my God, I really want to talk about this, but it's not about love and affection. And (laughs) it's just hilarious. But we are so excited to be talking about our love and affection episode starring the next generation characters. Yes, I'm so excited. Makes me envy a little bit podcasts who get to review entire episodes and just go in order. We were just on the Nerd Trek podcast a couple of weeks ago. We got to review two of their episodes. We got to do Contagion and The Royale with them. Both those podcasts are out now. You should definitely check them out. And it was kind of refreshing, honestly, to just be able to watch a whole episode and be able to talk about every nitty gritty facet because while I love doing our series, I kind of love taking a glance at these episodes in a different light. I love picking apart the writing and the directing and every tiny little detail. So it was really a blast to be with them. And we just want to thank them for having us. And we really want to encourage you to go check them out. You can find the Nerd Trek podcast anywhere where podcasts are found. Yeah, it was such a blast. We just have so much fun getting to nerd out about Star Trek with other Star Trek nerds. And it's just been amazing. Like it was so fun when we had Ed on our own podcast and uh, we can't wait to have future guests on our podcast. And yeah, it's just great to be sharing Star Trek with a community of people who are obsessed and love Star Trek as much as we do. I really felt like ever since we've joined the podcast community and the Star Trek community online that we have been welcomed by both love and affection. So um, I think these episodes, you know, in (laughs) while we're going through such hard times uh, out here in 2021, it's great to just stop and acknowledge the people who we really cherish and are thankful for. So Thank you, everybody listening to this podcast, and let's start talking about some love and affection for these Next Generation characters. Let's do it. So we have a new segment now at the beginning of our podcast where we ask each other what our favorite Star Trek ship is for each series in our Love and Affection series. And we're not talking about ships in space. We're talking about favorite couples. This can be in the canon, like it can be written into the show or it can be your own headcanon, your own couple that you think should get together but haven't actually gotten together. And so Ashlyn, this week for Star Trek The Next Generation, who is your favorite ship? It is the couple that we only get tastes of throughout the series. It is, of course, John luc Picard and Beverly Crusher. I have always mm-hmm. shown them. I 
always have seen myself as Dr. Crusher because she's so awesome. I mean, I'm not a doctor at all, but (laughs) all of her quick remarks and just strong, independent behavior, I love her and I've always admired her. And then I also am in love with Picard. So it's just natural for me to ship these pairs. (laughs) You know, it's funny that you talk about being like Crusher because I really see a lot of Beverly Crusher in you, Ash. She's very (gasps) honest. She's kind of blunt, but in a way that like you need to hear sometimes. You need to like hear the truth. It's a Sagittarius (laughs) energy. It flows through. I don't know if she's a Sagittarius, but I get the vibe. She probably is. Yeah. (laughs) That's a great choice. Thank you. That's a wonderful compliment. You're welcome. Brianna, who is your favorite ship on The Next Generation? Hands down, Troy and Worf. That one really just... I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I just Don't threw up me. in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. We didn't even include them on this podcast because that's how much we hate that that was ever a thing. This is the only problem with Rian and I being so alike is that if you guys love Troy and Worf, too bad. <laughs> Find too another bad. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was not love and affection enough for us. That was just <laughs> scary and not what we wanted. No, I think my favorite ship is also Picard and Crusher. There's like a close second with Data and Jordy, but I feel like they, I don't know, I don't get a lot of like romantic vibes from them. It's more like ride or die bros for life vibes, you know? I mean, with like a hint of gay, but not quite. (laughs) So I agree. I love the chemistry between Picard and Crusher. Can I just say real quick, Picard and Q, also a runner up. That is a fantastic show. I had my mouth open to say this exact thing. I was about to interrupt (laughs) and be like, you know, my second favorite is Picard and Q. Yeah. Because I think Q is super attracted to Picard, but for sure, Picard is just not into it. He's like, get away from me, Q. (laughs) Q is in his bed like half the time. I mean, come on. There's a lot of innuendo in their relationship. Well, this is great. I am so, so thrilled about the episodes we chose. I was, Ashlyn and I were texting back and forth this week while we were watching it. And Ashlyn was saying, oh, I was wondering why I've been so sad this week. It's because I hadn't been watching Star Trek. And immediately when we started watching Star Trek, my spirits just lifted because these episodes are so fun and hilarious and awkward and really just everything you need in a love and affection series. Absolutely. And just like what we did with the original series review of Love and Affection, we decided to choose our favorite episodes. This is by no means all the Love and Affection episodes in The Next Generation because that would be a (laughs) 10-parter podcast on our part. (laughs) There's no way to cover every single relationship. And so Brianna and I uh, got together and was able to narrow it down to a list of 12 episodes that we thought were the best or the funniest or the cutest or just anything that we thought was worth talking about on the pod. So I'm going to go ahead and read those episodes just so you can follow along at home and have kind of an idea of what to expect here. So for Love and Affection, we have chosen to talk about The Dolphin, Icarus Factor, Disaster, Iborg, In Theory, Hero Worship, Outcast, Perfect Mate, Inner Light, Lessons, and Attached. So as you can see, these are some really historic episodes, some episodes that a lot of people consider to be the best of all time. It was an honor to watch them. We are very, very excited to begin. And we decided today that we're going to start with the episode The Dolphin, which is a 
classic Wesley Crusher. Uh, how do you say? <laughs> He's sort of an awkward boy in this one. <laughs> I was going to say cringy, but it's not super cringy. It's just a classic Wesley Crusher episode. I think it's a classic coming of age episode where writers from the 80s <laughs> tried to have discourse on puberty. And, <laughs> and it's a little awkward, but a little charming. Yeah, so the premise of this episode is fairly common. We're seeing the crew <laughs> carry aboard some dignitaries who are going to a world, and there is a woman aboard. She's the, I want to say bridge between the worlds, but she's not the avatar, so <laughs> I can say it like that. I was going to say emissary, but she's not the emissary. <laughs> <laughs> Ambassador? No, she's the chosen one. <laughs> all these references <laughs> she has this bodyguard who can shapeshift but turns out she can also shapeshift Celia can it's a lot there's a lot going on in this but it's really wesley's crush his first attraction to anyone you really missed the opportunity to say it's wesley's first crusher you really oh. missed it. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> did i miss it or did i deliberately not say it oh mm. <laughs> yes either way I'm wondering how old Wesley is in this episode. Do you know? Like 17, 16? I don't it is know. so hard to tell how old Will Wheaton is ever. So like, I just, I have no idea. My guess would be around 17, 18-ish. Yeah. I mean, he hasn't applied to Starfleet yet. This is just in season two, so it's still pretty early. I also think being aboard the Enterprise, at this point, it's only been a year and a half he's been on it with his mom. I'm sure there's not a lot of dating opportunities. <laughs> No. On the Enterprise, I think all the other kids are children. There's probably no one really his age. He's always hanging out with Jordy and Data. They're his besties. I think that any pretty girl, woman who comes on board is definitely going to catch his eye. But the fact that she is so smart... I think is really exciting for him because not only is she beautiful, but she can talk as much about the ship and everything and how it functions just as much as Wesley can. And so that common ground is really rare, I think, for her. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think he's sort of floored by this because the only reason that they first interact is because she's being escorted to her quarters and Wesley was asked to get some sort of tricorder, some scanner thing for Jordy. <laughs> And stumble, I think. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Classic. And so he's like carrying it, just walking down the corridor, and she's like, Ooh, like, is that the new model? And and immediately they just hit it off. It's actually a really cute scene because I feel like you're so right. Wesley doesn't get to have discourse with people his age about sciencey, spacey stuff, you know. I mean, it's probably just little kids and his mom he gets to interact with. <laughs> I mean, maybe there's some Lower Decks crewmen who are more around his age. She's very beautiful. She's very sure of herself. I think it's everything that Wesley didn't realize that he wanted. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I hate to be that person who's referencing opera, but this whole... <laughs> Sorry, what a hilarious sentence because I don't think there's anyone else who's that person who's referencing opera. It's just you. So be that person. I mean, I just don't want to come off as hoity-toity, but like, I mean, I have two degrees in opera performance, so I mm -hmm. can't ignore that. Yeah. <laughs> but this really came off to me as a kind of Carabino character. And Carabino is a character from The Marriage of Figaro written by Mozart. He has a whole aria where he's like 14 and he sees the princess's maiden for the first time 
time and he's like oh my god she's so hot you know <laughs> is basically what he's saying the whole song and he's talking about his emotions are running wild and everything and I, I think that's what they're trying to say about Wesley too but it comes off as people like Troy and Jordy just treating him a little differently and weird. I thought it was hilarious that Wesley forgot the stumble or whatever he was supposed to grab. He totally <laughs> forgot. And he's asking Data about girl advice. And Jordy is like, hey, Wesley, <laughs> where are you? Down to engineering. He's um, like, are then- you sick? Literally, he's like, are you okay? <laughs> and Wesley's like, about what? <laughs> I mean, this is just classic being a teenager. But then later, Wesley cannot concentrate at all on his job. So Jordy just dismisses him. And I applaud that type of uh, mental health awareness where Jordy's like, you know what? It's just this dumb teenager. He needs to go uh, go away from me. (laughs) I mean, he says even then, this is your time. And Wesley's like, time for what? And he's like, your hormones are changing or whatever. And I'm like, oh my God. It's just hilarious because... Jordy has no time for slackers in engineering. He runs the tightest ship in the fleet. Yeah. Yeah, like you have to be if you're under Picard's command. If you're chief engineer, things have to go smooth. I was just going to exclaim that this is a galaxy-class starship and it has to be run the best possible. Anyway. Ashlyn, who's a Picard <laughs> uh, ride or die, is like, listen, he's right. It has to be a tight ship. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. What I did not like, the first thing in this episode, I'm just going to say right now, is Riker is discussing on the bridge with everybody what he thinks about this woman who's just come on board. And Riker says that she looks too delicate to be leading the people. But then Worf says, do not be fooled by her looks. The body is just a shell. And I loved to hear Worf coming out to bat for the feminine race. I hate when people say things like that. And I was just so happy to see someone like Worf coming to the rescue. I know also they're trying to foreshadow that she's literally a huge bear. (laughs) Um, So Shining light, you know, whatever she can turn into. shimmering light. I also want to talk about, because in the middle of the episode, Wesley's asking everybody for advice. So Rihanna, I'm wondering what your favorite piece of advice was that Wesley got from the senior officers. (laughs) Oh my god. Honestly, actually my favorite scene was the one between Riker and Guinan, because they're playing off each other is fantastic. I think Whoopi Goldberg and Jonathan Franks had the best scene. It's one of my favorite moments. I had completely forgot existed because Riker is sort of like, Guinan, will you come over here and we'll do a demonstration for Wesley how to hit on women? And Guinan, of course, is just like, sure, whatever, like, (laughs) I'm happy to help. And so they sit down in 10 forward and Riker is immediately schmoozing Guinan. You're the most beautiful woman ever. You have gorgeous eyes and you're striking and, you know, all these things. And Guinan is hitting back with these absolute slaps of quotes and stuff i just love it the way they play off each other is so good and wesley is like this is not for me (laughs) immediately (laughs) not interested he leaves and Riker and guyton continue i just love it because they're both such shameless flirts and so it works so well because we don't really get to see them interact a ton besides you know Riker's like hey guyton can i have tarkalian tea or something like the scene with when he kisses lol and guyton's in the background you know they don't have a ton of the two of them 
them interacting. And so it was super fun to see that. And I bet the actors just had a blast doing that scene too. So that was probably my favorite moment. What about you, Ashlyn? Well, I just want to agree with you that I really love that scene. I think it just was a perfect opportunity to showcase the talent of both of those actors. We know that Whoopi Goldberg goes on to win an Oscar later. Yeah, I love that scene. And it's not about Wesley at all. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But my favorite scene was when Wesley's talking to Worf and Worf is describing (laughs) (laughs) how Klingons flirt with each other. And Worf says that... um, (laughs) that she you know he well he starts the scene by like letting out this loud yell um but that's what the women do and wesley says well what is what does the guys do and he said oh he reads poetry and ducks a lot (laughs) yes because Because he said a woman woman throws heavy objects (laughs) yeah Knowing the context of what will happen later when Worf and Jetsia get together in DS9 is hilarious to me because we've seen Worf attract mates and we will in a couple seasons in Next Generation. So I just liked this foreshadowing of Worf's character and just setting up this hilarious moment with Wesley, but it's actually rooted in truth, you know? Absolutely. And we've been thinking about Groka in Deep Space Nine, how yes. she definitely is the kind to hurl heavy objects and <laughs> scream to attract their mate. That is so funny. Yeah, th- those scenes are so good because it really shows the range in which different characters deal with attraction and love. I love that, of course, Troy's advice is sound and perfect and what you should actually do. The rest of them are just sort of a mess. Jordy is not really a ladies man at all. He is struck out every time that he's yes. <laughs> tried to get with somebody because he really just loves the ship and his engineering career and data. And so like he's not interested in romantic love, it seems like. And so when Wesley asks him, he's just sort of like, eh, I don't know, Wesley. This is not what I'm trying to do right now. <laughs> he kind of reminds me, and I know because of the episode Elementary Dear Data, but he does remind me of John Watson a lot. Someone who tries so hard with the ladies, but just can't figure it out. <laughs> not get it going. Yeah. As this episode goes on, we see some cute scenes where Wesley and Celia get to sort of sneak in time together because Celia is super protected by her guardian and she doesn't want her to go anywhere on the ship. The guardian doesn't. And so Wesley kind of sneaks her out to the holodeck to be like, yeah, I've been all these planets. Let me show you on the holodeck what they look like. And I just got to think how heartbreaking it is for her in this moment because she really does seem to be falling for him and she wants to love him and she wants to explore worlds with him and have this freedom of life but this is not what she was destined for this is not her duty you know her duty is to her people and it's just hard because i think she genuinely does like wesley i mean he's he's a he's a cute little guy they seem very compatible and so i just also though am proud of her that she stuck to her guns and that she was like gonna follow through she didn't just drop everything to be with wesley like some women in the original series might we do see some strong autonomy here i do love that even though it's hard to watch for the both of them because they both just want to be together and explore strange new worlds together i really like celia i noticed that in the beginning of the episode she's telling her caretaker her governess i think right that she doesn't know how to be a leader and she doesn't know what's going to be asked of her and she has a lot of uncertainty and so i think that her draw to wesley is also an escape route Mm. you know i think uh it's something to distract her from the the coming duty that she has to fulfill 
having Wesley there was a real comfort to her because the chemistry is so strong. Wesley, who I expected to be very awkward while watching him on a date, he actually, he was very smooth. I was surprised. Mm -hmm. He was pretty charming. He kept his head. I really liked this couple. And I'm going to talk about it more when we talk about the perfect mate. But I see a weird parallel between these two women. You know, both of them are conditioned by birth to fulfill a duty in uniting two peoples. And so it's interesting that we see it first with Wesley and then later with Picard and how each of them handle it. Obviously, yeah. both have the same results. But yeah, Great I, point. I, I, I thought of that. sometimes, you know, stories tend to recycle. But I just thought it was interesting that it was Wesley and Picard who went through these similar situations. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, that's a really great point. One moment I did not like in this and was just sort of like, oh, classic teenager going through feelings and thinking before he spoke. Wesley, had, when he finds out that she's a shapeshifter and when she turns into something that isn't a beautiful humanoid woman into this like bear-like creature, kind of reminded me of the salt sucker in the yes. original series i was thinking that plum yeah <laughs> plum. Plum. what episode was that the uh, man trap man trap of course yeah. yeah so when she turns into something that maybe isn't as desirable he gets super mad she comes to his quarters and he is dejected and pissed off at her mostly i think for withholding the truth from him he said i loved you past tense and she says i love you too and he goes, can you? And I'm like, Jesus, God. Wesley. I feel like it was probably partially just his raging emotion. He's going through a lot. Like he's really trying to hold on to a love who is not available. And yeah, I'm just super glad that he then decided to show up at the transporter room and to see her off because he was like, get out of my quarters. He was so mad. And she was really just trying to convince him. I'm still me. I'm still a person that you are falling in love with and I'm just glad that he did sort of come to this realization as well it was a little bit childish which makes sense he's still you know like he's maturing and he still has a lot to learn classic Wesley I was just proud of him though that he came around in the end I was like good job Wes <laughs> I mean, Wesley has a really good heart at the end of the day, and even though sometimes he lets his emotions get the better of him, he'll think through his problems and come to the right conclusion. And so I trusted him. I was pretty mad too, though. I was like, what, Wesley? You can't be doing this right now. Yeah, I'm totally with you. I'm glad he did the right thing. And it ended up being a really beautiful ending. She's this beam of light, I guess. He was looking at her in the end, and I think he thought that she was beautiful, so... <laughs> Yeah, because she even said, I want you to leave before I have to change out of my humanoid form. And he doesn't. He stays yeah. and sees her true form and what she has to become on this planet. And it's a lovely moment. I'm glad, as heartbreaking as it is for both of them, I'm glad that it did turn out the way it did. Yeah, I think it poses as... I think it poses an interesting challenge for the writers because there are so many characters on Next Generation that are in the main cast, you know? Yeah, yeah. But we have a ton of episodes where they interact or fall in love with these random side characters. And so I think it just poses an interesting challenge for them to say, okay, how can we get this guest star off the show in one episode or two episodes rather than just killing them every time, you know? Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. So I appreciate that. And we see many different ways that they get them off. And we'll talk about that in this episode. <laughs> 
So at the end of the episode with the dolphin, we see Worf resolving his issues with the caretaker woman because the whole time they've been fighting over the security of Selena. Their last conversation is that they both agree that they would love to fight each other because they had a nice fight uh, <laughs> earlier <laughs> in the ready room or whatever, and that they, they are both worthy opponents for each other. And so in my notes, I actually wrote, not only does Worf sip that respect woman juice, he actually shotguns that respect woman juice. <laughs> <laughs> He's fucking it like blood wine. Yeah. <laughs> or like prune juice, you know. Oh yeah, that's yeah. what we're apropos. Oh my god. <laughs> Ashley, that is hilarious. <laughs> the next one we're going to discuss is called In Theory. And it is a data-centric episode. In this one, we wanted to talk about it in parallel to the dolphin because there is a similar scene. What? I'm sorry, I had to be make a dolphin sound. <laughs> good job um there's a similar kind of advice train that data goes through that wesley also went through because data is also new to love he obviously he doesn't have emotions he doesn't feel things like humans do or humanoids do and so he is very lost when this one she an ensign she a lieutenant oh she's a lieutenant lieutenant her name's Jenna. When she kisses him, he's like, uh, what do I do? What do I do? And so he's floundering like, oh, I should probably go ask all of my humanoid friends what the deal is. And so, of course, he goes to Guinan and I love her response. She says that she doesn't want to give advice on people's first love affairs. It's something they should figure out on their own. And that is really kind of great. <laughs> I do just want to say that she did give Wesley advice <laughs> on the dolphin. So she didn't really give advice. She just decided to join in the role play. Like no, she wasn't. No, because Wesley and Guinan talked like midway through the episode. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah that part she where she runs away, where Celia runs away, and Guinan says, "Sometimes when women leave, they want you to chase them." <laughs> so you're right. That's true. And also at the end of the episode, when they're broken up, she's down on the planet. Guinan's like, you're never going to feel this way about anyone else again, you know? Oof. Well, I yeah. think she I think says, Wesley just, says that. Wesley says, oh. like, I'll never feel this way about anyone else again. He's like, I feel empty. And Guinan is like, after a time, that feeling will, like, you'll get used to it, but you'll never truly get over it. Which is true. Like, your first love, it's something that's really hard to let go of. And it's a standard that you compare uh, all your the relationships do well yeah sometimes that's bad sometimes it's good it's mm -hmm. a crazy phenomena yeah absolutely why then do you think that Guinan chose not to give advice to data i think that data is really smart and Guinan knows that data will be able to figure his way through by himself and I think she's giving him some trust to say, like, you don't really need my help. You have all the heart that you need to go through this relationship is my interpretation. I like that a lot. Yeah. Why do you think? I think mostly because I honestly don't know if Guinan understands Data. I think that she gives him great advice in The Offspring when he has Lol, but... I think that she truly is an emotion-based person. Like she gives us a lot of like cancer zodiac energy. I'm a cancer. So like I just vibe with Guinan. So I feel like 
she's sort of like, I do not want to touch this. Like this is a person who is physically incapable of feeling emotions. I don't know how to relay my own experiences. She's been married 23 times. She has quite a lot of relationship advice and experience, but I think that when it comes to someone who is physically incapable of feeling emotions, she's like, I I can't properly give you advice that would help you in this situation because she can't relate to it, which is wild because she can relate to basically any situation because she's mm-hmm. this wise, very old being. I think that's a great point. I was kind of thinking that as well. So let's see, who else does Data talk to? Um, Riker, Worf, Picard. <laughs> yeah, he really Troy. talks to everybody. Oh, and Troy. Yeah, I, I really like... Tr- I think Troy's advice, I mean, as always, she's the ship's counselor. I think she's always going to give the best advice. I thought it was really funny because she was saying, no, really consider it data. You have to be really careful, really be cautious. And then Riker, on the other hand, is like, go for it, man. He's like, you do. Help me aboard that train. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Worf is so protective of Jenna because she is in his department. And I think that is hilarious because it just reminds me how loyal Worf is to his people, people who are in his circle. And so he's security chief. He's already ready to kick butt if need be. He is like, just don't hurt her. And Data is like, noted. (laughs) You know, it's just, it's a really great scene because we get to see Worf with his mama claws out protecting Jenna in this moment. And I think that it's valid because... There's a lot of opportunities where Data could hurt her without even realizing. And this is what makes this such a complicated relationship is because Data acknowledges himself that he doesn't understand the nuances of love and he doesn't understand how to court someone and how to be a good boyfriend and a good partner. And so I think that it's understandable that Worf could see a possibility where Data could really hurt her without even meaning to because he's very blunt. He'll just tell you exactly what he's thinking all the time which can be very hurtful and can be taken the wrong way quite a lot. So I really liked his reaction for that one too. I did too. I totally agree with you. Worf would be a great department head because he's, you know, promoting you. He's giving you fun extra jobs. (laughs) He's protecting you from lovers who could hurt you. Yeah, I mean, what a guy. Right? He kind of reminds me like same vibes as Lieutenant Shaxx in Lower Decks, you know, where he's just like, this is the bear pack. Let's talk a little bit about their actual relationship because I, yeah, one more person, Picard, has no advice. He's just like, (laughs) I don't know what to tell you, Data. (laughs) And that's about the extent of it. I just think that's so funny because classic Picard is still like, I am not getting involved with this. I do not know what to tell you. I love that too. Yeah. Anyway, continue, please. (laughs) Head empty, no relationship thoughts. Yes. Let's get in a little bit to their actual relationship because I have a lot of questions about it. In the beginning of this episode, like the first half, I was actually really enjoying the relationship because she genuinely likes Data, finds him funny, is charmed by him. And to be fair, he's the best friend you could ever have. I mean, he's checking in with her periodically about her breakup. He's reminding her over and over again why to not get back with this guy. He's downloading software to inform him about how to be a better friend. I love the care and attention that he puts into her relationship. I think the mistake is that she thinks he's only doing this for her. 
Mm-hmm. But I think in reality, Data's goal is to become as human as possible. So I'm sure he's downloading files about how to be he a better is. friend for Jordy oh, and oh, yeah. for the whole crew. Every Ooh. interaction, Data has the mental capacity to think deeply about every single relationship. And so he's just trying to be the best android possible. I would easily be confused too, though, because if a guy was paying this much attention to me and went this much out of his way to help me over and over and over again for extended a period of time that's unfortunately not an expectation of every friend that I have and so when someone is going above and beyond like that it's really easy to think of that as romantic attraction I think their relationship actually starts out okay the question on my mind is is data giving too much in this relationship and what is he getting back from it? What's he getting from her? Because he does not accept her emotion. Yeah. So you're going to have to reel me in because I'm going to go off the rails here talking about okay. data. Sure, sure. <laughs> I'll throw you a, a rope when you're, yeah, before <laughs> when you're off the rails. In the okay. Data, love. Okay. Um, go for it. I'm ready. Because I'm very protective of him. And so <laughs> this is a tough episode for me because oh. the thing that so many people don't understand about data, even as a part of his crew, is the fact that he constantly says that he's incapable of showing love, but that is a fat lie. That is absolutely incorrect. He shows his love exactly how you were saying, Ashlyn, through his diligence in being a good friend, through his literal nonstop desire to make sure someone's doing well and to be in their corner. I mean, we see this time and time again. We talked about it in our family series, how he will support Jordy through anything. It seems like Jenna and Data are fairly good friends. Like They've probably known each other for a while. It seems as though they work on a lot of projects together. Similar fields on the Enterprise is what I can tell. I loved your perspective, Ashlyn, when you said that Jenna is just floored by someone paying that much attention to her. And I gotta be honest, it's often true with both men and women or with people in general that if you're getting paid a lot of attention to a lot of times we automatically assume they're flirting with you. And so I really like that you brought that up. But this relationship is really complicated because of the fact that I don't think either of them understand how they show love. I mean, Data's love language is like acts of service, you know, and words of affirmation. Obviously, he can't show love in the ways that humanoids who do have emotion expect from him. And I think it's an unfair disadvantage for data that people expect him to be human when he's trying so hard to be human but literally fundamentally is not human it's constantly put on data that he should be more human but when he's more human people are like this is inauthentic this happens in this episode i'm getting so mad sorry i love data and i just want him to be respected this is is the same look you get in your eyes when you talk about spock I mean, yeah, they're my faves. I love an emotionally unavailable man. <laughs> just just like Jenna. You guys have the same type. <laughs> it's, it's actually because I like women and that's the real reason. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, maybe Jenna needs to do some soul searching herself. Yeah. Maybe she needs to uh, broaden her field. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Data is trying so hard to be a good boyfriend in this episode. Initially, when they first start dating, it's you're right, it's pretty cute because 
they hang out in each other's quarters, they have dinner, they talk about their ship's duties of the day, what have you. But then as the more data is running through his program, as he calls it, which I understand can feel a little offensive and disingenuine if someone's like, I'm running a program about our relationship. Can't you just have a relationship with me? Data is bending over backwards to try and be a romantic figure with a capital R that he's read in books and that he's probably seen in like hollow videos and stuff. And he's done so much research about how to attract a person. He is really creepy. There was a moment where I was like, is this an entity taking over data? And that's why he's acting so weird. That's what my first thought is, is because he's doing that half creepy smile. And he's like, honey, I'm home. And like all this sort of stereotypes that you see in a sort of toxic culture of novels that he's reading. I'm like, you're reading old earth novels that should not be your basis of how to treat a woman, but it's um, fine. I, I think he's reading the Royale. <laughs> <laughs> I was a dark and stormy night. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. He's relying on these cliched tropes to get him through because it's all that he has to lean on. All of the advice he gets from his crew are not something that he can easily do. And so he is like, well, I just rely on the computer's database on what love looks like. He's like, I'll shower you with attention. And then she's like, this is too much attention. It's hard because Jenna gets him this nice little sculpture for his uh, quarters. And Data has a very appropriate Data response. He's like, great. These are what the contours of the sculpture remind me of. It reminds me of planet that we've been on and the waterfalls or something. He talks, he's very analytical about it, which to me is exactly what I would understand about how Data is showing love. This is the way that he's showing his appreciation for the sculpture she got him because he's describing it and he's saying how cool it is in his own way. But she does not get that. She is not looking for an analysis of the sculpture. She's looking for, oh, thank you, honey. What a nice gift. Let me put it in the center of the room where I can display it to all of my friends who come over. And Data's like, this is an aesthetically pleasing place for it. And she just gives him a look like, "Mm, not correct. And so I think that that is what is hard with this relationship is that they're clearly both have very different intentions and very different ways of showing love. Neither of them understand the other in that way. And when Data is being very artificial about, you know, when he's using all the romance cliches, she says, I just wanted the real you. And he says, there is no real me. And like, how true and heartbreaking is that for Data? Because he is striving to be something that he isn't. And that is his only goal in life. And it's this unattainable very difficult thing for him. I'd really love to see this journey for Data. I'm glad that he took this journey with her and I'm glad that he had someone who he could start to at least understand the concepts of love and see how regular relationships work, particularly on a starship. They function in different ways than how they would on a planet or whatever. He can't be something he isn't and that's what she's looking for and this is why ultimately the relationship doesn't work. Hearing you talk and thinking back to this episode reminds me of a quote I heard from John Green. I love their podcast, Dear Hank and John. Rhiannon and I are avid listeners. John Green, he wrote Fault in Our Stars, for Alaska, Paper Towns, all all that good stuff. Vlogbrothers, anyway. He had a quote a couple weeks ago that said, one of his greatest disappointments was not getting into a writing class in college. Only the best writers were admitted, and he was really upset that he wasn't let in. But Mm -hmm. in hindsight, his writing was all imitating other people. And that was the reason why. It was because he didn't have his own voice yet. And so this is the same kind of problem that I see with Data. He's compiling all of these different sources 
because he thinks that it worked for them, it's probably going to work for me. But what he hasn't grasped yet is that only the right person is going to be right for him and he can't change himself. I was thinking while Data was analyzing that sculpture, you know, who would have really liked his analysis is Jordy. You know, Jordy is someone who that type of response would have been perfect for because he would have been like, oh, yeah, Data, I've seen those caves and they look exactly (laughs) like that, you know, or whatever he's going to (laughs) say. Totally. Um, (laughs) I mean, they're clearly not a match, but it is interesting to see both of them go through this and it's kind of intriguing you know it's 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 like oh how is this going to work with an android who can't perceive these emotions both from her perspective and from his so anyway that quote just came to mind that it's just a reminder to all of us to be as authentic as possible and we will attract the people to us that we most vibe with (laughs) period that was incredible wow ashlyn well said thank you for bringing that up that's so important yeah, sure. Yeah. I just thought it was a great way to end this episode when Data realizes that they can't be together and he just has a soft little moment to himself where he says, I have so much to learn. Mm-hmm. And I just think it was a nice moment for him to reflect. He's doing great, but yeah, I mean, he's got a lot to learn if he ever wants to pursue a real relationship with someone. Yeah. I love that Spot just jumps onto his lap and he just pets Spot and then it fades to black. It's a really lovely scene. I mean, you just need a cat. Oh, if anyone <laughs> understands him, it's Spot. Come on. (laughs) Spot doesn't know who Spot is from one moment to the next, so it's fine. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Absolutely. Let's move on to an episode that is not data related, but it is all about love and affection, even if you might not think so right away. And that is iBorg. Rihanna, I want you to start this because I know this might be one of your favorite episodes. Rihanna just posted this via Instagram, so I just learned it myself. Every time I watch it, I remember how much I adore this episode. Suffice it to say, Jonathan Del Arco, how Hugh returns in Picard, how Picard is working through his trauma. The Geordi-Hugh friendship in this is like platinum gold. It is so amazing. This is a such an important episode on so many levels, I think, because it's our first introduction into seeing a Borg become an individual, which is the literal pathway of why Seven of Nine exists in Voyager. It's a groundbreaking episode for Borg and how we think about Borg and how we treat Borg and starting to understand that these are victims who have been forced into a life of enslavement, essentially, and through their assimilation. And so something that struck me so deeply about this episode when looking at it through a love and affection lens is the boundless empathy that Beverly Crusher has for people. And I mean, she's a doctor, so she's taken the Hippocratic Oath. You know, she's obviously um, along the lines of first do no harm. Seeing her at the beginning of this episode where they find Hugh on the planet, he's near death. I should call him three of five in the beginning, but (laughs) Beverly is practically begging with Jean-Luc, we need to save this person. We need to save this Borg because he's dying. It's only because Beverly says it that Jean-Luc relents, I think, which shows their connection and their bond and his trust with her and also Beverly's trust with Picard. She knows that he's not going to let him die regardless of if he's a Borg or not and regardless of the trauma that Picard's been through. I love this moment because in this scene, we see a back and forth from on the planet to on the bridge and Data is at the helm and Troy is in her normal place next to Picard after they decide to bring Hugh on board. 
Data shares this look with Troy that's essentially like, we need to help him right now. And I love that because it shows Data is very perceptive with his empathy of like people around him. And it shows that Troy is also thinking the same thing. She's like, yeah, I need to go talk with him. And it's such a beautiful moment of them all connecting on this fundamental level that you can only get from being together for, I think this is season five. So like five years, I think. Yep. 523. <laughs> yeah. So, which I got to say season five, I just am always reminded how freaking incredible it is. It's truly one of the best seasons of Star Trek ever. Like it's, it's so hit amazing. After hit, after hit. Yeah. Platinum yeah. gold record. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love how Beverly is consistently standing up for Hugh in this episode and how she is sort of the ringleader. She's the one to get other people into her way of thinking. She first sort of incorporates Jordy into it. She's like, he needs to eat. And Jordy's like, fine, I guess I'll make him like a little thing, a port that he can connect to to get his nutrition. And um, him and Worf go into the cell and they're very concerned about getting assimilated. Obviously, they're worried about him being violent. And Jordy's like, you're welcome when he gives him the food and everything. But it's not until they get to talk that he starts to learn about Hugh and he starts to see what just an innocent, young, precious being he is. You know, he's just a sweet cinnamon roll who got assimilated. Because of the discussions we've had about Seven of Nine in our family series, it expanded my empathy even more to think about, I don't, we don't know how long it's been since Hugh was assimilated. We don't know anything about his past. I would guess though, because of the way that he is and how quickly he latches on to individuality, that he's probably been assimilated not very long, is my guess. Because with Seven of Nine, it was like pulling teeth, trying to get her to become an individual. And within an episode, Hugh is, or half an episode, Hugh is already saying, I am Hugh, or at least like accepting his name that Troy and, or that um, Jordy and Crusher gave him. So I think that is really, really interesting to see how quickly this crew, if they show kindness, is influenced and how if they just show a little bit of compassion, how completely altered Hugh is for the rest of his life. So Ashlyn, take it away. I'm going to talk about it for the rest of the time if I don't. So please shut me up for a bit. Well, you know, I can't shut you up because this was going to be my big philosophical take on this episode too, Rihanna. You took it away. (laughs) (laughs) My bad. Uh, Literally. This, what I also took away from this episode was that kindness and mercy spread like a disease on this ship. I mean, like a good disease. You hear the word Borg. Everyone is clammed up. Worf is saying, shoot him and be done with it. You know, fear is overwhelming the crew when they see that there's a Borg and that they're going to save the Borg. Literally, Crusher is the only one who is wanting to save him and who has any interest in being humane about the situation. And she slowly breaks people down. In a, I mean, in a good way. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. She slowly is able to erase their fear and proves that it is more beneficial for them to be nice to him and to show him respect and to treat him as a person rather than sending him off to be a drone for murder, you know, for the rest of his collective. It's contagious. <laughs> as soon as Jordy begins to like Hugh, he goes to Guinan. And 
he says, hey, this is a weird situation here. I think you're going to be interested. Like, you should talk to him. And Guinan especially is someone who is so against the Borg because they destroyed her whole family, her whole civilization, all of her people. We've talked about it before. She's like the doctor in Doctor Who. There's no more of her people. She's extremely old. She's lived a long life. And she hates the Borg. Those are kind of her pillars of truth. And so to see in this episode her go from being so unforgiving and so hateful to advocating for Hughes' safe passage off the Enterprise is a shocking turnaround. And it's because of Dr. Crusher's kindness and it's because of Hughes' willingness to cooperate with them and to show empathy himself. And I love this episode as well. It's a classic. It's a beautiful episode. And they make sure to check up on Picard throughout this episode. We all know that he has baggage. You know, if you've seen The Best of Both Worlds, you know how dramatic that was. And then if you saw the one episode he took to resolve his emotions... You know he's not really over it and Mm -hmm. we see again in First Contact and in Picard he's going to be forever affected by his moment with the Borg. So the fact again that he's able to get over this because he's able to overlook the fact that he's a Borg and to see the deeper more complicated details is beautiful and that's why I love Star Trek. I mean all of this is why I love Star Trek. Yeah (sighs) Star Trek takes black and white and says no these are actually all gray areas and we're going to explore them all and I love that about this show yes yes particularly i don't want to talk about picard with the capital p sorry the show itself (laughs) i do think that that one act of mercy literally will come to save picard's life in the future i mean if he didn't have hugh to be on that borg cube there are these moments that you can see have consequences to these actions and i think that it's so important that act of mercy This was a very rare side of Picard we don't see very often, a very troubling side, where he was not only willing to kill 305, Hugh, he was also willing to literally make him a biological weapon. He was ready to commit genocide because of his trauma and because of what he's been through. I mean, of course, I have such empathy for that. And I completely understand where his hatred comes from. But it also shows what a compassionate man and what a strong person he is that when he actually talked to Hugh, he changed his mind completely and they sent him back to the collective, especially because he gains information from that interaction because Hugh is like, oh, hi, Lacutus, how's it going? Picard falls into the Borg role and says, we will assimilate this ship. Geordi will be assimilated. And Hugh is immediately protecting and defending Geordi because they have become so close. And it's because Geordi and Crusher were the first people to show him kindness absolutely since he was assimilated. And so he is getting that experience again. And so when he hears that Jordy will be assimilated, he is horrified. And he's like, no, but you guys want individualism. Like that is your whole thing, you know? And <laughs> it's just such a well done episode. And I have to commend LeVar Burton's acting in this. I think it's one of his best episodes ever. LeVar Burton is a very talented actor and he's so good in so much of Star Trek. But there's something about this episode that I feel like he really connected with. And I feel like he really portrayed this desperation to make change for Hugh and for the people around him. All of their acting was just so spot on in this episode. Patrick Stewart did an incredible job of playing this sort of bitter, terrified figure that we don't get to see a lot until Picard. The scene where Hugh says goodbye to Geordi is 
so beautiful and so heartbreaking because he says, I will try to remember you. We know that he probably won't, or at least won't until he officially regains his individuality. And it makes me wonder, in Picard, did Hugh ever look up Geordi and did they have a conversation? I would love that. Like, did he go to Utopia Planitia and be like, hey, let's hang out? There's this one moment at the very end of the episode where the Borg are just about to beam back onto the cube with Hugh and Hugh just looks at Geordi. And the look on Geordi's face is just both so proud, but also so devastated, you know, because he just made this fast friend who is incredible and who is protecting him from Locutus. It didn't need to end in a firefight for it to still feel so impactful and so beautiful. I'm so happy you brought up this relationship between Geordi and Hugh. And I just want to remind you that Picard season two is currently filming right now. So I think if you wanted to bribe LeVar Burton to go visit the set, maybe we could set up some kind of flashback with Jonathan Del Arco. I'm just yeah, saying. Is- I know, I know, I know. So that's what I'm saying. We need like a flashback of Jordy and Data's library hanging out <laughs> in all good things. Totally. I too was really struck by how fantastic LeVar Burton was in this episode particularly when he's trying to get through to Hugh in the beginning and tell Mm -hmm. him, we do not like this. We do not like being assimilated because I'm just trying to put myself in Jordy's shoes. How often do you get to directly tell someone that could make change? You have a representative of the Borg with you. That's like hanging out with someone who's a member of Congress or the Senate or Mm -hmm. in the White House, someone who could make real change. They've never had contact with the Borg, really, ever. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity to speak up close and personally with the Borg. And so I think Jordy uses his opportunity very wisely to get the message clear and loud that Starfleet does not like this. <laughs> Nobody likes this. Overall, I'm just reminded that the little acts of mercy we can take and the ways we can forgive each other and make positive changes in this world has a way of paying you back. Absolutely what you said, Ashlyn, about the positive change that you can have on a single individual's life. We see again in the episode Hero Worship. This is a fantastic follow-up. This is why we wanted to do it in this order. Because even though it's a very different situation in which the Enterprise encounters another lost soul, (laughs) it resonates similarly to if you reach out to people and help them, then the whole world can become better. A perfect example of this is this kid, Timothy, who was stranded on a ship that had been nearly destroyed. His mother and father were both killed. Every single crew member aboard died except for him. Talk about trauma. Talk about the kind of pain you go through in that. I mean, how old is Timothy, you think? Mm, maybe 12 12? yeah 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 11 or 12 in that Mm -hmm. range he's a tween or early teen (laughs) i mean he's already going through a lot of hormonal changes (laughs) (laughs) just like jordy would say to wesley they find him and data is the first one to interact with him and to save his life i mean he is the hero that timothy is worshiping in this episode and much like hugh who latches onto jordy timothy really latches onto data in this episode because He was the one to bring him from the hell that was his life for those, I don't know how long he was stranded under that bulkhead. This episode is really interesting because 
I think about how amazing it would be if every child had this amount of concern about their mental health. It's amazing that our key players, we have Picard, Troy, and Data, who are very focused and very determined to help Timothy, not only for the mission. I mean, sure, that's a part of it, is they want to get him to be able to talk about his experience, but also because they want him to grow up and be a productive member of society. And part of that is working through this trauma right now, not waiting until he's 30, 40, 50, we're pressing it forever. I thought it was really interesting to get to watch Troy and Data observe him at school and how he's not paying attention to class because he wants to build this sculpture. I love that he connects with Data because Data is a very safe person to connect to because as we talked about earlier when we were discussing in theory, he's someone who will go to bat for you. He's a great friend. Mm -hmm. And even though he can't feel an emotional connection to you, he can choose to spend his time in a way that's going to benefit you. I love seeing how sweet they are together. I love when Timothy gets his hair combed like Data and they're dressed like each other. It's just really precious. Timothy's mimicking his facial movements, mm-hmm. <laughs> his, head, his head tilts. Yeah, so I was mostly just thinking about how amazing the next generation would be if, <laughs> ha ha. <laughs> I meant how amazing our current children would be if we spent this amount of time thinking about their mental health as Timothy gets to. Absolutely. I mean, I know that no one gets paid on the Enterprise, but Troy still doesn't get paid enough for oh, the God. amount yeah. of work that she puts in and just the heart and soul that she pours into every individual who comes into her office. She's easily the best ship's counselor of all time. Yeah, I do love to see the ways in which they guide him through this trauma. And I think that Troy, because she's such a good counselor, she has such a deep understanding of what children need. Timothy decides that he wants to be an android. And so he acts like Data. And like you said, he does head tilts and he dresses like Data and they do the same thing. He says, I am functioning within normal parameters, you know, all of this stuff to emulate Data. Troy is like, let's go with it. Like as much as we can, let's work with this and allow him to really experience a life with no emotions so that he can get through the toughest period of this horrible experience he went through because this is his best coping mechanism. I think that it's really cool that Troy didn't say, oh, we should discourage this. He needs to be a certain way right now. She said, okay, if he wants to play act being an android until he can work through some of his own things, and if he wants to feel like he has no emotions for a while, then that is totally valid. I mean, of course he chose Data to emulate. I mean, first of all, Data saved his life, but also Data is physically incapable of feeling things. And so that means that if he could be like Data, he doesn't have to face the grief that he's going through. I do love the challenge that this provides for Data as well, because Troy is like, you should stay with him. Like, you should be his companion as he's designed to be an android. And he goes to all of his doctor's visits with him. And it's really cute because Crusher's like, oh, yeah, looks like all your circuitry is functioning normally. 
everyone bands together to help him through this and especially Data because he will also be honest with him and he does very subtle prodding to suss out his emotions and how he's really doing which reminds me again and again how in tune Data is with the people around him that Data per Troy's advice says you should also talk about your own experience with attempting to be human because then maybe that could bring Timothy back into wanting to feel human again and wanting to start to confront those emotions and confront his grief. Again, showing how if you positively help people and don't disregard them and really listen to them, then they feel validated and then it's easier for them to open up. I love all of your points so much. I think that Data really masterfully is able to get things out of Timothy too. He's not being manipulative. He doesn't want to be too blunt with him. And so Data has a really beautiful roundabout way of kind of checking in with Timothy and being like, hey, just a reminder that I wish I could taste something. And even if it means I have to feel sad too, I would gladly trade it so I could both taste and feel sad. (laughs) Timothy's pretty shocked by that, but I think it gets through to him and so yeah i just applaud data's tact i think we have a natural tendency that when our body is sick or injured mentally or physically our body wants to heal itself you know we want to get better and we want to do anything we can if we broke our leg then naturally over time if we give it some rest it's going to heal and it's the same way with going through a traumatic experience like this and sometimes the healing process might be a little unorthodox you know Mm -hmm. like Troy's not going to prescribe to everybody you should let your child dress up as an android for (laughs) six months and then after that he's going to be just fine this is something that Timothy knows this is going to help me if I can just rest and relax and give myself time to not feel any emotion. Then when it's crunch time, I can finally express how I'm doing and literally save the whole ship. And so that's also what I love about this arc is you help someone, especially a little kid who's alone, totally abandoned, trying to restart his life. You help him and then he pays you back by saving the life of the entire crew of the Enterprise. Life is not always these big stakes, but I love to see how full circle this solution is. And also for Timothy to understand that it was not his fault that Mm -hmm. everyone on his ship died, because I think that is exactly the guilt he's carrying. And that's what he admits at the end of the episode. His arm hit a panel when he was falling. And that was the exact moment that the ship started exploding. And so he thinks it was his fault. But of course, you know, we've seen Riker like sit on all the buttons and he... (laughs) No, he doesn't destroy the ship. Firing (laughs) torpedoes into space. (laughs) I'm sorry. I just imagined Riker flirting with someone and then like accidentally setting up self-destruct. Like that would be such a flaw (laughs) in the ship's design. Computer, cancel self-destruct. And also, will you meet me at 10 forward in 10 minutes? You know? (laughs) Anyway, yeah. So I'm just glad that this kid gets some truth in his life and he's able to move on. Well, um, Data has a lovely line at the end of this episode when Timothy is like, okay, I've decided to be human again. And he's worried that Data will no longer hang out with him and do things with him because he's not going to be an android anymore. And Data says, I have many human friends. I would be pleased to count you among them. And I love that because it's Data still showing, hey, I'm not going to judge you for whoever you want to emulate just because you emulated me for a while. And he says the imitation is the highest form of flattery. Exactly. I just love to see the support. 
Speaking of crews that support each other, I want to talk about this dynamic trio again of Wesley, Data, and Jordy, and how they help Worf through his right of ascension in the episode Icarus Factor. Now, we talked about the Icarus Factor already in our family episode of The Next Generation, but obviously we didn't talk about the B-plot because that was all about Worf. So (laughs) this B-plot is wonderful, and it is such a beautiful little series of clips where... Wesley notices that Worf is very rude to him and he's very on edge and he's snapping at Wesley. He's not interested in what's happening with Riker. He's clearly (laughs) absorbed with his own problems. And so kind, beautiful Wesley goes to Data and Jordy, his besties on the ship, and says, we got to help Worf. I don't know what's wrong, but something's wrong. And what I love about this is that Jordy, I don't think cares at all about... (laughs) About Worf. He might care, but Jordy doesn't want to do the work. <laughs> no, no, no. And He's so like, he... I've got a ship to run. Yeah. You figure this out, Wesley. Yeah, because Wesley <laughs> proposes this whole schedule like, oh, let's follow him around. Let's mm-hmm. see why he's mad. And Jordy's like, you can do that, Wes, and you let us know. <laughs> yep. Yep, exactly. And I do love that Data also gets involved in this. And he's like, sure, I'll go talk to him while he's in 10 forward, sitting in the corner by himself because Worf has to be angsty. I think it's so telling how attuned they all are to each other and how, of course, Wesley knows that he's acting strangely right away. I mean, Jordy makes a joke, Worf acting strangely, what's new, you know, (laughs) essentially. But he's like, but for Worf, he's acting weird. Wesley figures out that he's feeling, what did he say, culturally and socially isolated from his own kind. Not only just the only Klingon on the Enterprise, the only Klingon in Starfleet. And so that is a huge isolation factor that Worf has to deal with every single day. And so it makes sense that on anniversaries like his Rite of Ascension, he would feel completely cut off from his culture and cut off from the certain traditions that he holds so dear. And I love that just with a little bit of sleuthing, Wesley is able to figure this out and to be like, okay, figured it out. Now, how do we help him? They are men of action. These people will work tirelessly to help each other out. They will go to this very intense ascension ceremony, (laughs) which I just got to say, I love that O'Brien is invited to this because as we will see in Deep Space Nine, he is also a part of Worf's bachelor party and he is fooled again. (laughs) He's like, Klingon bachelor party? Sounds fun. And even in this when he's like a party for Worf sounds great I'm like dude you never learn he's a Klingon you know these ceremonies are gonna be wild yeah and if you don't hang upside down at them it's not even that intense of a party so (laughs) if there aren't pain sticks then what's the point of being there I was gonna say I think Wesley this is kind of his first sign that he would be a great FBI agent because he really (laughs) goes through the computer database to figure out okay how old is Worf okay um, what are all the Klingon holidays? How could they possibly <laughs> pertain to Worf's life? I thought that was great. I mean, that just tells you even more how obsessive he is about trying to help his crewmates. You know, I think it goes along with him being maybe a little lonely on the Enterprise mm-hmm. and he's got some time to spare and he's really devoted to his friends. And I just, I love that part of Wesley. Everyone knows at a traditional rite of ascension that your family's supposed to be there mm-hmm. and they don't even question. Wesley just says, well, then we'll be there. We're his family. We're his friends. I think it means so much to Worf when he sees all the trouble that they've gone through to really accurately recreate this ceremony. And 
I love that Troy walks him to the holodeck and she's like, you'll see, you know, yeah. like I'm, I'm not going, but I hope you have fun. <laughs> I love it because she doesn't even offer like an excuse or anything when he's like, aren't you coming in? And she just goes, no. And she walks away, like love a good respect of your own boundaries. Way to go, Troy. But also she does guide him there and is like, don't worry, Worf, this is a prize you will like. It's all because of a genius ensign that this is happening. So she gives that credit to Wesley and love to see a support squad for Worf. They're out here telling him over and over again, you are loved. We want to understand your struggles so that we can help you through them he never expected to get this kind of help and support from people. And I think it was because Worf is a pretty closed off guy. The fact that people still recognize that and still help him, it's just really great. And uh, love to see a support squad. <laughs> we see a lot of different dynamics of various characters interacting in The Next Generation. And one of my favorite instances of odd pairings of people working through stuff together is the episode Disaster. I want to talk about the Geordi and Crusher moments in this episode because the ship is under complete crisis. Everything's shut down. Communications are off. There's no way they can travel through the turbo lift. It's all bad. And so everyone is stuck in whatever place they currently were when the ship malfunctioned. And Geordi and Crusher are in a cargo bay whatever's in the cargo is gonna explode. I love seeing this crew work together because they all have such similar hearts and minds that they are just immediately like, what do we need to do first? Crusher is like, here's how long we can survive before space kills us, you know, if we jettison this cargo. And Jordy is right there with all of his engineering knowledge. He's but right before this scene happens, they have a beautiful moment where Crusher is like, come on, just try it. And Jordy's all embarrassed and nervous. He's like, no, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. And Crusher is so supportive. She's like, no, come on. And then he starts singing the very model of a modern major general. I am the very model of a modern major general. <laughs> yeah. Everything like, from Manarol or Mineral. Yeah. <laughs> a classic bop. It's a bop. Yeah. <laughs> and he starts singing to Crusher. And I feel like you have to have a lot of trust and respect for someone, especially if you're shy about singing, to sing in front of them. And it's a really cute moment where Crusher's like, that was great. You're a little off pitch, but we can fix that. And then you can perform <laughs> it at one of the nights we have. <laughs> I love how candid she is. She's like, yeah, you're a little out of tune, but it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> this is why Ashlyn is Beverly Crusher. Like, She's definitely said that to me before well, we were singing together. <laughs> I was actually thinking it while Jordy was singing. I was like, he could easily just have a couple lessons and you could get him in tune. You know, like that'd <laughs> Be easy to fix. LeVar Burton sounds great. <laughs> and so I don't know why this was so endearing to me, but I just loved to see pairings that you wouldn't expect and how they interact. I mean, we did get to see them interact in iBorg and we get to see them again here in Disaster. Yes, me too. We were just talking about how close Worf and O'Brien are. I love that Worf then is the one who's delivering his daughter. This is when Molly O'Brien is born and Keiko is a badass giving birth during this situation. She's got a calm head and she's guiding Worf through all of it, you know, even while she's screaming and giving birth. You may now I give love birth. 
Yeah, I I love the banter between them. It's so funny. And it's really, really moving at the end when Molly is born. I, of course, also have to talk about all the scenes with Picard and the three kids that he's stranded with in the turbo lift. Now, these kids are the science fair winners. And so their reward was a tour of the Enterprise. And that's when they all get trapped together in the turbo lift. And it's hilarious to see Picard yelling at the kids to stop crying. (laughs) (laughs) To see how totally inept he is at first with dealing with these kids. And even how awkward it is at the beginning of the episode where he's trying to get anything out of them at all, have any type of normal conversation with them. And he's treating them like adults. And they're all under 10, I think. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So it's like Picard Day. He's just terrible interacting with children. And so then when push comes to shove and he's forced to help get these kids out of the turbo lift, his ankle is broken. And one of my favorite parts is when he gives them all ranks. He takes the pips off of his collar and gives one to each of them and makes them part of his quote unquote crew. At one point, Picard says, you're going to have to leave me behind because I can't move and you guys are going to have to escape on your own. They talk about it and they decide no. We don't want to leave you behind. We have to stay together as a crew. And it turns out that was the best choice because later we see the turbolift go into a free fall and Picard Mm -hmm. would have certainly died if he had stayed on the turbolift. And so I love that these kids, obviously they're scared and they want to stick together with an adult who's going to be in control of the situation. But also they could have just been selfish and left Mm -hmm. him in the turbo lift. I thought it was really beautiful that they decided to stick together. And I also love when they're climbing up the turbo lift and Picard, of course, is singing Farrah Jaca. That's his favorite song. <laughs> I mean, it's going to come up in another episode we're going to talk about in like a couple minutes. So. It comes <laughs> up in like two more episodes. He's singing Farrah Jaca all the time. Mm-hmm. It's such a smart move on his part to use music as a way to unite the kids together because it's a way for them to focus on something other than the terror that they're going through of climbing up this turbo lift. So even though Picard is terrible at having conversations with children and interacting with them, in a pinch, he can be a pretty inspirational figure, which we all knew. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And I think an important thing to note within this scene is the fact that he goes to what he knows in order to interact with these kids, which is assigning them rank and making them officers. This is his wheelhouse. I mean, he knows how to command, but it also instills confidence in the kids. It's such a smart move, especially giving the pips from his own collar. Like that is such a symbolic act of, I trust you. He calls the oldest child number one. She's sort of like the point person for the rest of the episode when they're in these crisis moments. And I just love that he is smart enough to realize I need to get these kids up and moving and we need to get out of this situation. And I need to do it in a way that I know will resonate with me and hopefully will resonate with them. And that is when I just am always so blown away by Picard because he utilizes the situation that he has to the best of his ability to turn it into his favor. 
I absolutely adore at the end of the episode when they come on the bridge to give him a commemorative plaque as a thank you. Picard is like, number one, you have the bridge. And both the girl and Riker say, I, sir. And it's really cute, you know, and Picard does a little wink to the girl. And you can see they still have their pips. So it means that Picard just gave them to them. That's got to be such an important moment for those kids. Like, imagine if you had a pip from Picard's own collar. Like, Ashlyn's fainting over here. Oh, <laughs> she's. Oh, I just died. Oh, God. <laughs> from his own shirt. Oh, God. Literally. Someone we haven't talked about too much for this disaster episode is Troy because she's going through her own journey on the bridge separated from anybody else. She's with O'Brien and Ensign Rowe and there's someone else. Everyone else is killed. (laughs) And so they're suppressing their horror and just Mm -hmm. trying to get through the situation alive. And there's a big dispute about what to do because Troy, even though she holds the rank of Lieutenant Commander, she doesn't actually have command experience. There's a lot of arguing going back and forth between Roe and O'Brien and Troy ultimately makes the decision because she's the commanding officer and she chooses to divert the remaining power to engineering in the hopes that they can use it to get the ship back up and running. What I love so much, you know, this was a very agonizing choice because if they diverted the power, it could have ended up exploding the ship if the relays exploded. Mm -hmm. And so it's very, very high stakes. But thank God, guess who is there in engineering? Guess who the one is who finds the signal that we have to do something from engineering? It's Riker and Data. I just wonder if this is like this Emzati connection coming through strong where Riker's like, wait, the power's on. They must want us to do something from the bridge. And (laughs) he, of course, he gets a message from Troy because they're old friends. They've been lovers in the past. They're still very, very close. I just thought it was really beautiful that Riker and Data was the one to be there in engineering to fix the ship. And then they save the whole crew. And the overall feeling of the episode is that we have to work together in order for everyone to be okay. Absolutely. And the fact that Troy trusted that people were still alive and still working their damnedest to make sure that they got out of this crisis. I love that. I love that she put her faith in other people. Oh, it's so cool. It's something I admire so much, particularly about the Next Generation crew, is just how deeply they trust one another and how willing they are to put their lives on the line knowing that people will be there to catch them. It's incredible. I mean, Data literally sacrifices his body in this episode because there's a current that him and Riker can't pass through. He's like, Commander Riker, remove my head and then continue (laughs) walking. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think with that, we should start talking about Troy and Riker. Talk about the Amzadi connection. (laughs) They just have such a bond. We had the privilege of talking about them in both our family episodes of TNG and Picard. So we're going to focus this time more on their other romances outside of them. But of course, it always comes back to Troy and Riker. So you know that that's where we're going to end up. Just spoilers for this episode. (laughs) Yes, yes. Let's start with The Outcast. This is a great episode and a really boundary pushing episode because it involves a race of people who have no gender. It's a really interesting dive into the way that we perceive gender and an exploration of sexuality and a lot of stuff. I know at some point 
we're going to have a queer series where we talk about these types of episodes in a much more in-depth way. But for this, you know, we're just going to talk about specifically Riker's relationship with Soren, who is the main person in this episode, who he has a thing with. Absolutely. Ashlyn literally had to hold me back from not getting into a whole rant about LGBTQ rights in this episode because we will talk about it in an upcoming series, like Ashlyn said. But we are coming back to what we had discussed earlier with Worf and his attitudes towards women and gender in this episode is really awful because he had that amazing comment we talked about in The Dolphin. And then in this episode, I didn't write down the specific quotes, but Worf is really not understanding of a genderless society. He really doesn't get the value of it, and he doesn't understand their culture at all. And so he kind of lashes out, and it's really pretty toxic. These two comparisons were really interesting because like any person in real life, we all have dicey moments, you know, where maybe we don't say the right thing, or maybe we're not as educated as we would like to be. And so this is just an opportunity to remind people, continue to learn about people, continue to learn about the world around you and not just your world, you know, learn about cultures you're not accustomed to, learn about societies that you don't often involve yourself with, because then that's the only way that you can expand your understanding and how we can start to become a more cohesive society is if we start to empathize and learn about people. And I think that's exactly what Riker and Soren are doing in this episode and what they're investigating. Yes, I'm not a huge fan of Riker's very binary perspective on gender and very heteronormative perspective on gender, but I think that he is asking questions and that Soren is very interested in learning about the gender binary. It's just important that they're investigating these topics. They're talking about sex. They're talking about relationships. And that is the only way that you learn is if you ask questions and you commit yourself to questioning society around you and understanding people you don't understand. If you don't know things, don't assume, ask questions. Don't be like Worf in this episode. <laughs> yes, I hail you, Rihanna. I uh, I totally... Uh, Rihanna here, you hailed me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> yes, uh, you have a communique, sir. It's from me on your podcast. Yeah, read any news outside of the US if you're mm -hmm. not in the United States. Read any news that's not from your country at least yeah. once a week. What's mm -hmm. going on in the world? It's just good to know. We got to all be informed. That's the only way that we gain empathy. So I thought this was a really sad episode, actually, because I think that Riker really gets along with Soren. And they have one of those relationships where once they start talking, they can't stop. And they're so interested in each other and have so many questions that they're asking. They just instantly click and they want to spend all of their time together, even while they're on duty. Riker is not someone who slacks off during duty. Sure, he's a womanizer, but never really while he's at work. Yes. So <laughs> um, only when he's off at 10 forward or when he's clocked out, he's a womanizer. So <laughs> it was pretty surprising to me to see Riker 
spending this long time with Soren in the shuttlecraft that they often will stop sometimes for like 15 minutes and just talk about their relationship or talk about each other's planets. And I thought it was really sweet that they were able to have so much time together. And it shows you how serious Riker is about Soren. So then we learn about how narrow-minded that Soren's planet is and how sad it is. It's kind of the opposite problem that we have. And that's clearly what they were trying to demonstrate is that they have no gender on their planet. And so anyone who shows any signs of maleness or femaleness separately or feels that they identify as female or identify as male is shunned and forced to go through treatment, which is, they don't say electric shock treatment. It's but like conversion therapy. Yeah. That's the metaphor, I think. It's what they're trying to go for. Horrific yeah. So Soren is found out because she admits to Riker. I say she now because Soren says that she identifies as a female and is tired of living a lie. She's found out and she's taken to court and Riker beams down to basically lie and say that I forced it upon Soren. It's my fault. Soren doesn't feel this way. Soren is not sick. Soren is fine. But Soren is sick of living a lie and tells the truth that no, I have always felt like a female once I figured it out and I've had secret relationships all of my life. I don't want this anymore. And so Soren's forced to go through with the conversion therapy and we have this heartbreaking scene at the end of the episode. And I want to again talk about Worf because right before Riker is going to go down to save Soren from this therapy, Worf comes to him and says, I am your friend and I know you're about to do something dangerous. You can order me to stay and I'll listen, but otherwise I'd like to come down with you and help you basically. And so I kind of see this as Worf is able to overcome his confusion about this species and say, I don't really understand them or agree with their thoughts about gender, but I will help my friend. And so I thought that that was a good conclusion for Worf. The end of this episode is just sad because she's been converted and she, I think, is either too afraid to admit that Soren still feels like a female or is just too scared to... It's a very sad ending and I feel terrible for Riker. <laughs> and Soren, duh. I feel terrible for everyone, the whole species. For sure. Well said, Ashlyn. I think one of the quotes I really liked from Worf is he says, a warrior does not let a friend face danger alone. Yes. I and love that's that essentially well. Worf in a nutshell. You know, he will risk life and limb to help his friends because he knows they will do the same for him. And something else, you're absolutely right. This episode is so heartbreaking, particularly the ending because we get to see how well Soren and Riker blend together. The chemistry is insane. It's so cool to watch. I mean, I don't think that we get to see Riker truly fall for someone who isn't Troy in this series. We only get him maybe having sex with someone occasionally with someone he doesn't really seem to care about. In the beginning of the game, I remember he's running around a hotel room on Risa with some random woman, you know, trying to grab his communicator. It's like those types of relationships. We don't see him fall head over heels. Totally. <laughs> he tells the court that is trying Soren for being female. He says, my relationship with Soren is not trivial. And that is very telling because I think that Riker has been in love with Deanna Troy for as long as he's known her. And to have his head turned that dramatically in this way is very significant and not at all trivial. It's a really hard episode to watch, but something that's so important and 
I'm really glad that Riker stood up for her and that he was able to speak his piece and really try to help her even though it was too late. He still was willing to risk his entire career and he decided not to pursue a relationship with Troy because of his career. So the fact that he's willing to risk it for Soren really shows his deep connection that they had. Yes. I also think that Riker and Troy's relationship in this episode is painted in a really interesting light because they have become really close friends and confidants to each other. So anytime that one is getting into another relationship, they check in with each other and say, how are you? Are you okay with this? And I really like that they constantly have that door open because <laughs> open communication is just the best thing in a relationship. That's what you need in, in any relationship. And so especially as a friendship as complicated as theirs, they need to be honest with each other at all times and they need to reestablish boundaries constantly. So it makes it work for them to be friends, but it's so worth it when you see moments like in this episode where Troy is really excited for Riker and she's not just jealous at all and she recognizes how seriously that he feels for Soren and she's very supportive of him. I just have to compliment them on how well they handle their changing relationship. Absolutely. I mean, she says at one point, you're a part of my life and I am a part of yours. That will always be true. And so she's yeah. showing I'll be here for you no matter what. And I think that's exactly what Riker needed to hear that I'm not going to lose you if I pursue something with Soren. Yeah, I'm proud of them. All this good communication <laughs> right? on the Enterprise. <laughs> well, and we get to see sort of a parallel of that in Second Chances, where Troy falls for Thomas Riker, a literal double of Riker from a previous ship like before he even joined the Enterprise. So it's still Riker fundamentally. They still have the same childhood, same upbringings, same relationship with Deanna, but it diverges now because he was stranded on a planet while the double of Riker from the transporter accident continued on his life and then joined the Enterprise, became first officer, never met Troy on Ryza when they were planning to. We get to see a very cool parallel here in this episode of now Troy is pursuing a relationship that is not Riker, but it's even more awkward here because he is Riker, but he's not. It's it's a very weird situation. Yeah, man. How many weird situations like this have we had now? <laughs> Anytime there's a double involved, it just gets really complicated. I thought it was fascinating to see how similar and different uh, Thomas Riker and William Riker are. Thomas is really reckless because he's been living alone. He hasn't had to answer to anyone. He's been doing his own thing for eight years. And I think, therefore, in his romance with Troy, he's a lot more bold. I loved the scene where he left letters around the ship for her. Scavenger hunt. And one of my favorite parts is when she's in engineering and there's a note taped to the warp core. And Jordy's like, can I help you, Commander? Like, she's like, no, I'm fine. <laughs> Jordy's like, why is there a flower on the warp core? You know? Because of his isolation, you're right. He is more bold because I think he took the time to really think and to realize what he wanted in life and what he wanted was Troy. But was it really? This is the problem I have with this episode is the fact that the immediate chance that Thomas Riker gets to go on another ship, he considers taking it, talks to Troy. At least he talks to Troy before they really make a decision. But it's still the same exact thing that Troy went through with Will Riker. <laughs> 
Will Riker also chose his career over a relationship with Deanna. And it just breaks my heart because poor Deanna is falling in love again with Riker. And I think that she never really fell out of love. They say that they're friends, but like clearly she's always have been infatuated with Riker. Riker's always been infatuated with her, but it's too hard to admit these emotions when career is such a huge barrier between them and could separate them at any moment. And the sole reason they never really got together in the first place. Yes, Thomas Riker had all these years to think about Deanna and he still is willing to leave the Enterprise right away. I do want to give him some credit. I definitely would not want to live with a double of myself on the Enterprise. I would be getting out at the first assignment. That sounds <laughs> awful. I mean, it's what Data and Worf talk about in this episode. Data's like, how would you feel if a double of yourself appeared on the ship? And Worf is like, it shows all of the stuff you hate about yourself. It's glaring. You're looking at it from an outsider's perspective. I would hate that. I think anyone would hate that. That sounds awful. And no wonder Thomas and Will Riker do not get along because they're too much themselves. And so I completely have empathy for that. But God, I mean, Troy is the one who really suffers here. You know, she's the one who has to, again, deal with the heartache of having another Riker choose his career over her. You know, to his credit, though, Will did warn Deanna. They're having one of their great friendship talks during this episode <laughs> where Deanna's checking in with him and saying, so I'm banging your clone. Uh, <laughs> how's that? Is that okay with you? And Riker says he's flattered and he also warns her that you remember what I did to you and that's the same person who wants to climb the ladder. And now that Thomas has seen where his other self went, yeah. first officer aboard the best ship in the quadrant, oof, yeah. gotta be so tempting for him and so exciting. And so I definitely feel bad for Troy. I agree with you. The other thing I'm concerned about with Thomas is that he has constructed a whole fantasy mm. about his life while he was stuck on this planet for eight years. Obviously, it would be very hard to go that long without human contact. I mean, being in quarantine for almost a year now, it's been hard to go without more human contact, but I still get quite a bit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I know how hard it is for me being an extrovert to not be able to go to parties and to not be able to talk to people in person all the time. So for poor Thomas, he's probably just talking to the rubble on the ground, you know? I see him describing these fantasies that he's created. He's wondering, oh, maybe if I hope enough, Troy will hear that I'm alive and that I love her. And I'm imagining her at my funeral right now and she's crying her eyes out and everybody gave me a beautiful eulogy. I think that he's not actually in love with Troy. I think that he's in love with the fantasy version of Troy. Mm. And that's why it's so easy for him to leave her immediately because once they're back together there's the reality of that it's awkward because there's two Rikers you know that's complicated and just the fact that he wants to climb the ladder you know so it's sad but I think it's a great episode because it reawakens Troy's feelings and it makes me excited because I know that they're going to be getting together relatively soon but like I know they end up together and so I love to see the step on their journey and also it answers a question for me especially when I've 
first watched through The Next Generation that I had been wondering for six years is in the pilot of The Next Generation, we have this very charged moment between Troy and Riker when they see each other again, but never do they talk about the specifics of the last time they saw each other or anything like that. And so it's really satisfying to get these answers in this episode, knowing what's coming next. Damn, that's so true. I love that. And I think you're so right. This is a stepping stone for them that leads to their marriage. And I think it makes them realize what's important. And the fact that it was just timing, I think honestly is what it comes down to with the two of them is timing was so not on their side until finally Riker was able to get onto the Titan and to get his own command and to have Troy come with him and for them to finally get married. You know, I think that was the step they were waiting for, but it just was a long road to get there. I mean, as they say, there's a great quote by Ted Mosby and How I Met Your Mother. To have a good relationship, all you need is chemistry and timing, but Mm. timing is a B word. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And I think they finally got it when they get married in Nemesis. That's such a cute scene. I love that marriage scene, even though it's random and (laughs) it's a shining light in a terrible movie. To see Picard send off for them and to see how in love they are. It's insane to see them look at each other and just how deeply they care for one another. And I love that they're going to go to Beta Z and have a naked wedding after this. You know, they get both <laughs> traditions and I'm sure that Lawaxana is there to be naked alongside Troy. Yeah, I'm just so happy that it ended the way it did because in so many of our other pairings, you feel like they're definitely going to get together any moment now and they never do. And so I'm very glad that they chose, the writers chose this route for Troy and Riker, even though it was a long, long road. <laughs> Yeah, getting from there to here. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) I had to. I had to. Well, is it the time? I mean, speaking of long roads and failed connections. Let's do it. Let's talk about Picard. He has some of the best episodes for love and affection that we could have ever chosen. I mean, I was thrilled to watch Perfect Mate, Inner Light, Lessons, and Attached for Picard. They were all fantastic episodes. And I will say before this that similar to our plan for a queer podcast, eventually, we also have a plan for a feminist podcast where we can pick apart more of the underlying issues going on in The Perfect Mate because there is a lot to unpack that we do not have time for and we'll be very off track if we try to talk about it in this Love and Affection podcast. So keep that in mind. We're leaving out a lot of the facets of this episode, just focusing on the relationship. Here at the Dura Sisters podcast, we want to continually inform you and remind you that at some point we will talk about every single facet of the Star Trek universe, <laughs> but but not this week. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so you'll have your queer and feminism and mirror and time travel series pretty soon. At some point, movies, it's all coming, folks. Don't worry. We got a long life to live and a lot of Star Trek to cover. So thanks for hanging in with us. Yep, exactly. A lot of sister love to go around. So don't worry. We'll get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in this episode, we have some weird Ferengi drama, which is just random. And I'm always like, here we go. This is before Star Trek wanted to show Ferengis in a good light. Yeah, I think it definitely was Rom, though, the actor who plays Rom, who is... Uh, Oh, of course, that's the great Max Grodenchik. Ah, 
So that was cool to see Rom before he was a sweet, precious cinnamon roll. But essentially, this woman is traveling in this egg. (laughs) And she's literally being transported in the cargo bay. Again, I'm trying not to talk about feminism. Um, Okay. The explanation is that she's maturing into her position as a metamorph, which is not someone who can change into shape like Wesley's lover from the dolphin. But she can change her personality to fit anyone, any male specifically. They were very uptight about saying male about a thousand times. Yeah, they didn't want to imply any sort of lesbianism at all because God forbid. I was like, what if the leaders are women, you know? Like, Uh come on. Anyway, we have to not talk about this, but... um... We get very outraged. I really connected to Crusher in this episode because Crusher is raising all of these same concerns. And Picard's like, oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, no, this is bad. But her emotions are really strong. Kamala is her name. And she is destined to be the one to bring these two clans together, these warring factions who've been not getting along forever. And I guess the lore on this planet is that there's a metamorph born every seven generations. Mm -hmm. And so that is a lot, a lot of pressure that this woman is going to be the only thing to bring peace. And I think kind of a lazy way for two civilizations to have some kind of diplomacy is you have to wait for a random woman to be born who you just, yeah, whatever. Who you just anyway. fell off as uh, a yeah. Again, we, yeah. <laughs> we, keep, we keep getting carried away here. <laughs> I'm going to stick to the facts this time. Yes. But anyway, Picard and her, they develop a very close relationship because Kamala is attracting every male on the ship. They all are so excited by her pheromones that she's putting out. They're all extremely attracted to her and every man that she's with she morphs into somebody different well and may i say here that since her egg was opened prematurely she was in the stage where she is releasing a huge amount of pheromones and so this is another problem is that literally the person who's selling her off the person who is i can't i'm so mad the ambassador said she will be a legitimate danger to your crew because she is releasing this excess amount of pheromones and every man will just be fighting to get to her. So, okay, I'm going to go backwards. I'm going to reference the very last scene of this episode, which is the ambassador talking to Picard. He's saying, Picard, I was chosen for this mission because I'm 200 years old and the charms of a woman does not easily reach me, which I thought was hilarious. I was like, you know, left. Which I was like, that's not true of old people. That's really rude. Yeah, that's ages, but you know. Yeah, it is ages. Mm -hmm. But anyway, we keep getting this episode is just (laughs) full of minds and we are stepping on everyone. Everyone. (laughs) Anyway, and so he says, Picard, how could you have possibly resisted this woman? And how did you complete this ceremony? And Picard gives no answer Hmm. because he cannot resist her. He not only falls in love with Kamala in a day, just like a Disney prince. Oh my God, yes. (laughs) He bonds with her. So all of this planning that they've done her whole life and how she's never alone and she's always being taught something and she's being educated every single way because she has to be the perfect mate, the perfect woman to any potential man. 
she ends up bonding with Picard and it's all for naught. The point of this bonding is that whoever she bonds with, she will be for the rest of her life. So it's kind of like, I guess, making a, a mold of your face. Her personality wandering and wide and she could be anyone. But once she's connected to someone, that's it. Man, I mean, this is worse than breaking the Prime Directive, in my opinion, Picard. Yes. This is a huge violation of this culture's traditions, but it's not intentional. And Picard is the last one in Starfleet who would try to commit this kind of horrible sin. But despite all of this, it's pretty cool that she is this powerful, independent woman by the time they have completely bonded. Maybe it's judgmental, but I do like who she is when she's with Picard. I think they have this beautiful chemistry together back and forth. I would argue that she is someone naturally who is incredibly intelligent and that's you know who he's drawn to and so i don't even know how much she really changes to be with picard maybe she likes more real gray tea or something or more archaeology um, or something <laughs> yeah maybe she's a little more skewed toward archaeology now but also as a side note i think she would be a jeopardy champion for like five seasons in a row <laughs> That's so true. She has all the knowledge. She knows exactly <laughs> what needs to be said when, and she'd just be like, what is the Baltic Sea? Like <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Rest 100%. in peace, Alex. He would have really loved Kamala. But anyway, yeah, I, I, I just love their relationship. And I have a question for you, Rihanna. Yes. That I was thinking about while watching this. Do you think that Kamala purposefully timed her metamorphosis bonding so she would bond with Picard? Or do you think it was truly an accident? I think it was an accident because of the premature nature in which she was released from stasis. But I think once she was released, you know, actually, I'm, I'm changing my mind. I think that she did not have the autonomy to decide when she was released from stasis because it was forced by these Ferengis. She was in flux. And I feel like this is a really tough position for her because she is giving off these pheromones. She is not fully matured as this mate that they've been grooming her to be for her whole life. And so I think she went to the man who would be least likely to take advantage of her. And I think that happened to be Picard. I think that maybe if, I don't know, if someone else on the ship were that person, she would have gravitated towards them. But I think it just happened to be Picard. It probably was more, I want to spend my time with someone who I know is not going to just be lusting after me for sex or for power. Because even Riker makes out with her in this. And I know that to an extent I cannot fault him because the pheromones, like it's kind of like a drug. It's kind of like a love drug they're all under. And mm -hmm. so I have to have some empathy, but also it's hard for me to be really sympathetic to a man who just wants to get in a woman's pants because this is just the common thread throughout society and it really bothers me. But I'm anyway, really in here, really in, in, in here. here. <laughs> Not about feminism, it's fine. But I think that Picard is genuinely interested in her, not just because he wants to have sex with her, but because he, I mean, but see, this is so dicey because she's only being the woman that he wants her to be. I don't know how much autonomy she has, period, because this is her nature. She said just as Klingons are predisposed to be 
more of a warrior race and more violent klingons can still fight against that predisposition yeah. which her made me a little mad her other generalization was that just like a vulcan has to be logical i'm like you don't even know cyborg so <laughs> <laughs> you how dare him? you say that <laughs> Yeah, so I think that there is a certain extent where she can fight against that nature, but in this vulnerable position that she's in, I think it's very difficult. Ah, This is so, so, so tricky. I don't really have a good answer for you. I think that it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of poor timing, the chemical imbalance that she's going through, as well as her desire to not bond with a power-hungry leader who wants to just take advantage of her. Picard is a very sweet man. He's constantly respecting her boundaries and he's showing restraint. And I think that's got to be a really nice change of pace for her because she has her whole life spent her time with women. And so when she's aboard the Enterprise, she's suddenly around all of these very horny, hungry men who just want to have sex with her. And then Picard has got to be a breath of fresh air. He may still want to have sex with her, but he is trying his damnedest not to show this and to be respectful and to show restraint. He's like, you are already taken. This is not my place. I'm going to not get involved. And I think that honestly makes him more attractive to her. What do you think? He keeps the lights on, you know. (laughs) (laughs) He keeps that six feet of distance. (laughs) Yeah, he does. I am just following the clues that this episode left me. I think she purposefully chose to bond with Picard. There are several, several clues for me. The first one is when she's in his ready room and she takes his chair which is a very bold move, but Picard likes bold women. And he's blocking all of her advances, every single one. And she says, you know, you shouldn't take it lightly when a metamorph shows interest in you. And he's like, I'm not taking it lightly. I'm just trying to respect the position that you're in, Mm -hmm. which is a great answer. And then later, she also says to him, I believe in their quarters, it's every metamorph's dream to bond with someone like you, Picard. Mm. And so I think she probably felt like the night before the ceremony, she was like, shoot, it's starting. I'm bonding. My choice right now is to either stop it, which would be to have him leave. And then she can spend time with her husband tomorrow and just not see Picard at all and only hang out with women all day I guess Mm -hmm. there's I think an easy way for her to postpone this bonding until the actual ceremony happens but because she wants to be with someone like Picard and she says also she likes who she is when she's with Picard and she's never felt that way before and she also talks about how it's almost prophetic that even though she's trained her whole life for this moment it's crazy it's insane that she meets a man like picard on the day before her wedding so all of these clues lead me to think that she just wants to be with picard and she wants to be who she is with picard and and you know it's it's so sad poor picard he gets the worst of it he has to choose his duty and his command over love every time every time yeah and so this is a first taste of what he really lost. That was really, really well said. I totally understand that perspective. That makes so much sense. And oof, yeah, this is a doozy of an ending. It almost felt like she died. Picard had such a strong connection and they had such strong chemistry that it, it, yeah, it's just really sad to see that he also has to be the one to sort of marry her off too. I mean, he's there at the ceremony and everything. It's, it's rough. 
Well, the next episode, I think, really solidifies Picard's transformation into someone who is isolated and focused on responsibility and his command and trying to climb that ladder. And this is, of course, the inner light, because this episode changes everything about Picard. Irrevocably, yeah, for yeah, the rest it, of his life. Yeah, most importantly, he learns how to play a flute, which to me, you know... <laughs> I almost did a spit take there. (laughs) I mean, yeah, and he plays it really well, so. Also, I'm kind of jealous because in 20 minutes, he learned how to play an instrument. (laughs) Anyway, but so this is one that we debated on whether we should talk about it for our family series or not. But because none of this actually happened and it's not actually his family, we decided to not include it. And so that's why we have to talk about it in Love and Affection because it's the ultimate Love and Affection episode. It is one of the best Star Trek episodes. Of all Um, time. Yeah. Yeah, of all time. I mean, this is one that everyone talks about this, this is, is a like great episode this is on on par with in the pale moonlight or amok time you know it's a this- city on the edge of forever yeah yeah yeah, this episode is so important to Picard's character for the rest of his time. I think you're absolutely right. This is something that Picard doesn't experience with anyone else on the crew. This is his breakout album. This is the <laughs> <laughs> this is the time where he is truly alone with these strangers, and the time where he gives in. I, I don't want to say it that way. It makes it sound like he's giving up, but he will fight tooth and nail to get back to his command. In every other episode, we see it in Chain of Command Part 1 and 2. He will not admit that there are five lights. He knows there are four lights. We see it even Best of Both Worlds. He, of course, could not resist the Borg, but he resisted until he couldn't. His command and the Enterprise is always top priority. And so the fact that in the inner light, as the years went on in his head, that he finally let go and decided to start a family with Eileen. Yeah, let me sort of back up a bit. So when he first enters this world, he looks very uncomfortable to find out that he has a wife. He is like, look, I am not about relationships. Where is my ship? Very uncomfortable with the fact that they're married. He is being forced into this situation. She's like, come lay in bed with me. And he's like, you're a stranger. I do not know you. But she's acting as though they've known each other for many years. I think what's most significant is the five-year gap that they have in between this moment and the commercial break, (laughs) essentially, where five years have passed. Eileen says to him, in all these stories you've told me, you've never mentioned anyone who loved you as I do. I love that. I think that changes Picard. And then he allows himself to let people in and he takes time for him to settle. But this is his allowance into this new world to be like, you're right. No one has loved me as you do. And in these five years he's learned, we hear that he's been attempting to keep charting the stars, looking for the Enterprise. He's still searching after five years. The true devotion he has to the Enterprise, he spent five years of his life, at, so he thinks, looking for it and not fully committing to Eileen and to his life on the planet. And I think that's sort of what sways him to be like, you're right, this love is so real and so true and nothing I've ever experienced before. It's got to feel great <laughs> to have someone who loves you <laughs> irrevocably and will who will stay with you for five years of you like not paying attention to her. I mean, I'm sure I don't even know if they sleep in the same bed. Like there's probably a lot of distance between them. And that is sort of his, I was going to say come to Jesus moment, but not really. (laughs) 
it's his come to Kayla's moment. (laughs) Yeah, it's his moment of realization that I must now accept the position I am in and start to live a life with these people and truly commit. See, I think like I love that scene. That's an amazing scene. It's very memorable. I think that the like actually the time that he really embraces the community is when she shares her feelings about how patient she's been with him. She says, look, Cayman, I've been waiting for you for five years, just like you've been waiting for the Enterprise. I've been suffering throughout all of this and I really love you, but you're lucky that I'm here. She doesn't say it that bluntly, but she does a good job of really getting through to him. I think for the first time saying, hey, you need to start giving back everything that I've been giving you these past five years. I think that's the thing. He's never going to truly forget about the Enterprise. If Worf had suddenly beamed into the middle of town, he would have been right back to Mm -hmm. being a captain. So he's never going to forget about the Enterprise, but he has to move on. I love that the community really embraces him. I love how beautiful this episode is once he does, as you say, give in, but in a good way, Mm -hmm. to this culture and his commitment to saving the people from this drought. I do have a question that is unrelated to love and affection, but this planet is called Catan, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so. Th- isn't that like the game? I say Catan. <laughs> um, and also, I mean, there's a desert in that game. Yeah. And it's all about allocating resources to your village. <laughs> I'm just saying that I'm wondering if the creators of Catan or Catan were thinking about the inner light. You know, probably. Um, I think that's that's canon. That seems right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, anyway, I just a very, very small note. (laughs) No, and I completely agree with it. (laughs) Because Picard is trying to allocate resources to his own town, and no one is letting him for a week. (laughs) So yeah. I'll, I'll trade you air for water with my cool converter I'm yeah, going to make someday. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, I also just think that this episode is a better version of the Paradise Syndrome that we talked about in the original series. Instead of having these people be Native Americans, they wisely made them just aliens, yep, you know, yep. uh, just a normal Star Trek episode. Mm-hmm. I was a little triggered, honestly, about seeing a government who ignored the weather at the expense of their citizens, thinking about everything that's happening in Texas right now. And if you're living through the horrible conditions in Texas where you've lost your power or you're running out of water, we send you our love Mm -hmm. and we understand how terrible it is that the government's doing nothing. So moving Uh, on. And to see how much Picard stands up for his culture. I think that that is so essential because that is also what creates the transition from him being resistant to this life to fully committing is when he goes to these town meetings and is truly standing up and he says, our people instead of like your people. I just also love how committed Picard becomes to his family because he's so not a family man and he's self-proclaimed not a family man for so many years that when he truly does have one and he has a daughter and a son, they're at the christening, you know, or whatever, and he's playing his flute. It's just all so lovely and so important for him to experience this family life. I think both to make him realize maybe what he was giving up as a starship captain by not having a family, but also, I know I'm jumping ahead a little, but also how relieved he was to get back to the Enterprise. You can really Mm -hmm. see it in his face. He looks around at his bridge crew when he finally wakes up and he looks so grateful to be home. 
And so I think it's this really tough duality for him because he was living this life that wasn't quite his own, but something that he learned to love and learned to really cherish and adore in his own way. But to find out it was only 20 minutes of your life and to then be placed exactly where you were 20 minutes ago, a lifetime ago. Oh my God, it's got to be this crazy amount of whiplash that would take years to even process. It's such an important thing for Parkar to experience, especially for Picard. I think if another crew member went through this, they'd be even more distraught about losing a family because they had had that opportunity. But it gives Picard a different perspective of what would my life have been like if I had chosen to go the more family route instead of the career Starfleet captaincy route. Yeah, I love that he gets a chance to live this life out because as we know with Picard, I can't help thinking about what a lonely existence he has on that winery. He has his Romulan friends, but he doesn't have a son to nag about dropping out of school to do some music, which I loved. <laughs> He's like, Dad, music is my life. Anyway, um, <laughs> I love the end of the episode where Picard, as an old man, is realizing that he's the one, you know, this alien species has been they sent their probe out and it's been traveling for a thousand years. And when Picard is having that realization, like, oh my God, I'm the one. I'm the one you're talking to. I'm the one who has to spread the word about this civilization and everything. They gave him the flute. And I think it's such a beautiful gift because music has a weird way of sticking in our brains and it really brings up memories. You can hear a song that you haven't heard in 30 years and it feels like you are right there back in that moment. Yeah, and you know every word, every time you listen to it as an angsty teenager, there's so much nostalgia attached to music. And so I think it's such wisdom of this planet to have sent the flute with whoever got to hang out on their holodeck for 20 minutes. (laughs) Overall, I think it's so important because in the next couple stories we're going to talk about, Picard is finally open to the idea of a relationship for the first time ever. Mm -hmm. And I think he's, he's acutely feeling this loneliness on the Enterprise and that he has to continue to choose between women or between love and his command yeah absolutely of course a perfect sequel to this episode is lessons in season six i loved watching it back to back because it felt like a direct sequel (laughs) i was so glad that we chose these two episodes and experience for this podcast one thing that i'll say first is that picard and beverly their breakfasts and their meals together are consistent she is a sounding board for him and i gotta say that nella the love interest in lessons looks a hell of a lot like beverly she has the same long wavy hair she's got the very same blunt attitude they are very similar and i think that's why beverly is kind of cold to her because she's like whoa you were stealing my man. Like you were stealing away our breakfast dates and you were impeding on my space. It gives Picard an opportunity to feel attached to somebody in a way that he hasn't sensed the inner light and sensed his experience on the planet. And exactly like you said, he does it through music. And I love that that's the crux of this episode. The, the cornerstone is the fact that the two of them play music together and that's how they experience each other's love. It's really, really amazing. 
I love the scene where they're playing together in the middle of the ship in between a junction of Jeffrey's tubes. She says that she's done some exploring, which means that she crawled through the Jeffrey's tubes with her little roll-up keyboard <laughs> to see where the best to play was. I love that Jordy and Data are hearing the music and they're like, what is happening? <laughs> Who's playing music? <laughs> right, which means that they probably yeah. also heard them have sex later, but you know, it's a whole Ooh. other thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that they do a beautiful job of showing why Picard can't be with her, even though it's so painful. But the reasoning is because at the end of this episode, she is forced to stay on the planet as part of a perimeter team, mm -hmm. which is going to safely evacuate the whole civilization. That's their village will be destroyed, you know, so they're saving people. It's for a very good cause. But Picard orders her to stay down there, which could kill her. This ion storm, it's not really an ion storm, but it could be yeah. because that's all they say. But anyway, this, this freak storm that's happening on the planet could kill her. And when they come back and it turns out she survived and they both have a great scene in his quarters, he says, when I thought you were dead, I began to shut down and I couldn't react or I, I couldn't do anything. I could barely move. And we see him despondent. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's devastated by the fact that she could be dead. And she understands. And they both know that it can't work for them to be together because the missions on the Enterprise are dangerous and often life-threatening. And it's too much to have Picard worried about someone who he cares for so deeply and at the same time be able to order them to their death. Mm -hmm. So... It's a beautiful episode. I love the use of music throughout. And I'm so sad that, again, Picard can't have what he wants. Yeah, because of his command and because of his duty to Starfleet and to the Enterprise. And I do think that Nella is a perfect, perfect person for Picard to go through this with. Because she is strong-willed and very passionate and will very much do what is right. And that's why they're such a good team and why they work so well together as partners is because they both know what's best. And you're right. Like, they both come to the decision together that she's going to transfer because they both can't function if each other are hurt or die. I really appreciated the detail they put into Picard's character development and how they use the inner light as a crux of this episode he says, I want you to understand what my music means to me and what it means to be able to share it with someone because he probably hasn't spoken much about his experience on the planet. I love what you said about Beverly being jealous of her because I totally agree with you. And now it makes me think having just watched Attached again, it makes me wonder the ending of Attached is that they both decide to not get together. Picard puts it all on the line for her and says, how about we explore these feelings and let's see where they take us. And Crusher says, but what if we're afraid to explore these feelings? And so I'm thinking retroactively, but you were jealous when Picard was with Nella. I love, love, love forever 
the episode attached. Obviously, as I said at the beginning of this episode, I ship them so hard. They're one of my favorite couples in Star Trek. It's like a fan's biggest dream <laughs> that your two favorite characters are forced to be joined by some technobabble thing in their <laughs> head, you know, so they can hear each other's thoughts as they try to escape. And I love how great their communication becomes because they're able to hear each other's thoughts. And at first, it's little things like Picard learns by feeling that she's afraid of heights. So mm-hmm. he is able to accommodate her and help her through that and then they just get deeper and deeper and deeper as the episode goes on and it's just beautiful to see to the point where we see them talking about the most sensitive connection they have between each other which is jack crusher who died and picard was the one who delivered the news to beverly Picard was the one who kind of caused his death. There's so many emotions wrapped up in this. The fact that they're able to discuss this while connected basically via telepathy is perfect for their relationship because I feel like there's a lot of circumstances where this could have gone really wrong. I love them individually. I love them together. And so this episode just brings it home for me that they're just a perfect couple and they've been growing and developing independently and I'm ready for them to get together. (laughs) Right, exactly. Ashlyn, well said. Something I also find so important about this is something we talked about with Troy and Riker is the communication. You have to talk through the things you hear in someone else's head if you are sharing their thoughts or else they're just going to fester and it's going to feel very awkward and uncomfortable. I love that Beverly is so blunt with him and she says, why didn't you ever tell me that you were in love with me? And Picard says, you were married to my best friend. He's like, I could not ever impede on that. And he explains that by the time that Jack died, he pretty much just pushed those feelings aside and said, I cannot pursue this ever. This is just dangerous territory. But I think the reason he does end up pursuing her and really putting himself out on a limb is because of his experiences in the inner light and in lessons and the way that he has been developed so much to begin to really learn about himself and how he loves people and I'm really proud of him for taking that risk. I'm very sad that it didn't work out and that Beverly was not ready for that. They are fine staying friends, but I know that that's not as content as they could be. But I do agree. Their chemistry is just fire here. Like, it's so good. My very favorite part of the episode, close to the very end, when they're back on the Enterprise and Riker is walking alongside them and they still haven't had their devices removed and so they can still hear each other's thoughts and Picard just laughs and he's like, ha exactly. And, you know, they're having this conversation with each other because they can hear one another's thoughts and Riker just looks so confused. He's like, what is going on? I love it too. This is a great episode. And I don't know if Picard totally fails in his mission. I mean, we see in All Good Things, they are really starting some type of relationship. I mean, in the alternate ending that doesn't actually come to pass, they were married and then divorced. Mm -hmm. So clearly he was successful. Yeah. And him putting his feelings on the line like that was impactful to Beverly. Yeah. And we don't know what she's doing in Picard. Obviously, they're not married. Is she dead? Are they divorced? We have no idea. Mm -hmm. So once again, I'm asking everyone to tell us more. (laughs) Give us a sign here. Uh, I know Gates McFadden would love to be on it. Well, I don't know. I don't know her at all, but I want her to. So (laughs) absolutely. Yeah. Wow. This has been a long and in-depth 
discussion about love and affection in Next Generation, which is a show that to me is not especially outwardly affectionate. You know, Mm -hmm. it's kind of a cold show, but the way that this cast and its characters relate to each other and love each other is amazing. Agreed. And this is why I love Next Generation so much is because of how tight everybody is. Absolutely. I'm so, so thrilled that we got to talk about these outstanding characters in these incredible episodes. And I cannot wait, Ashlyn, to talk with you next week about our Deep Space Nine love and affection series. It is going to be wild and fun and just a freaking blast. So we are so, so happy that you are all tuning in to this love and affection series. And we hope that you can gain a little love and affection yourself through these horrible, difficult times. And that this podcast can give you a bit of a reprieve into this Trek world. (laughs) Thank you, Rihanna, for saying that. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate having you here. Can't wait for next week. Woo! Thank you for listening to the Dura Sisters podcast. Please tune in next week for the third episode of our Love and Affection series, where Ashlyn and Rihanna will discuss the loving relationships in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and check to see our suggested watch list for our upcoming episodes. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a review on whatever platform you listen. Today, we want to send a thank you to Daniel from California for becoming a monthly patron for the podcast. Now, he has access to our exclusive reviews of Lower Decks, Star Trek Trivia, and upcoming reviews of the animated series. The first one will be out this week. You, too, can unlock these perks by donating any amount per month on our Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com slash the Dura Sisters podcast. If you would like to contact us for any reason, please do so at the Dura Sisters podcast at gmail.com. Klingon Battle was written by Jerry Goldsmith and Worst Revenge is by Arillo Voltaire. Why did someone go to Jordy LaForge for advice? Because they thought he would be a good advisor. 